Now we're, now we're going to read from God's Word, and we are in the book of John in the evenings. I'm going to read from John 4. We're going to spend two weeks in John 4. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 30, and then just a little bit more in the chapter. Uh, John 4, starting at verse 3. Jesus um, is uh, the subject here. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at that point, and at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman 
then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In verse 39, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all that I ever did. The word of the Lord. Well, by the time that you arrive at this point in the book of John, we learn that Jesus is the kind of person who meets all kinds of people in all kinds of places. You you see that he attends parties. He, He attends wedding parties. He attends high holidays in the holiest place of worship. He associates with tradespeople. He engages with government officials and academics and scholars. He spends time in the holiest city of the Jews. He spends time in the holiest place of the people the Jews hate. He answers questions from people who are reputable. He also answers questions from people who are disreputable. You start to realize that no boundaries limit Jesus. There there are no people who are off limits to him. No people to him are untouchable. No one's too educated. No one is too ignorant for him to engage, for him to care about. They all draw his interests. No people are too good or too bad. Now in this account, Jesus again disregards the social norms of his time. He has a personal conversation with a woman at this well in Samaria. So just let me give you some background about this setting, this woman. First of all, the setting where this conversation takes place, the setting is a place of tension. It's a, it's a setting, it's a place of racial tension and political tension. It's Samaria because Jesus is a Jew and this woman is a Samaritan. The Jewish people, under the strictest instruction from God, they were forbidden to intermarry with anyone outside of Israel. But the Samaritans who lived in a neighboring region, they consisted of people who had intermixed, Jews who had intermixed during the Assyrian captivity, Jews who were in the northern kingdom who married with some non-Jews and became the people of Samaria. So for Jews, these people, the Samaritans, they represented half-breeds. These were people who had ethnically polluted the line in their sight. They, the Samaritans to Jews, the, the Samaritans were children of disobedient parents. So here is Jesus, a Jew, with this woman, a Samaritan, and it, it, it's almost like a, a setup for one of those just very formulaic jokes. A Jew and a Samaritan are sitting at a well, at the well of Jacob. Samaritans, like Jews, descended from Jacob. They, they did have a common forefather, one of the patriarchs, Jacob. And verse 9, this is, this is what we're hearing here. A good Jew, an observant Jew, would have no dealings with a Samaritan certainly would not receive water 
from a Samaritan because an unclean person, like a Samaritan, the, the vessels that they touch are unclean. The water that they would serve you from that vessel would be unclean. You could not drink it. The touch of the Samaritan would make the water ceremonially polluted. If you were a good Jew, you would not take water. You wouldn't request water from a Samaritan. So it's a setting of racial tension. It's also a setting of political tensions as well. The Samaritans knew how the Jews viewed them. The Samaritans knew that the Jews rejected them. And as far back as the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the Jews absolutely would not permit a Samaritan to come into the temple of Jerusalem. And so not only did the Jews segregate the Samaritans from the place of worship, several generations back from from this conversation, several generations back, the Jews actually invaded Samaria and destroyed the Samaritans' temple. And the Samaritans remembered that. So there's this long political historical grudge between these two peoples. It it would be like red against blue. And, And red remembered what blue had done. And blue would not forget what red had done. Now, I, th- I think you could, you could maybe describe the, the feelings of, in, in that time, of a Jew towards a Samaritan, not so much as hatred, but maybe more refined, you, you could say it would be disgust. The Jews would be disgusted by the Samaritans. The presence of a, a Samaritan would disgust a Jew. And maybe you can even get the feel of that when you look at how red often views blue and how blue often views red with disgust. You can sometimes hear it, can't you? Now, second, the scene also contains tensions, not just racial tensions, not just political tensions, but also gender tensions. This is brought out in the text, verse 27. His disciple, Jesus' disciples came and they marveled that he talked to a woman so in that culture, and, and this is like many other cultures in the world, even today, a man simply did not have a conversation with another woman in public. It, it transgressed propriety. And so this is part of the woman's surprise when Jesus asks her for water. It's noon, it's the heat of day in an, an arid climate, and Jesus is tired, he's thirsty, he's been walking from Judea to Samaria, and it's a three days walk, and he asks this woman of Samaria for a drink from this well, from Jacob's well, and she's shocked. She's shocked because of the racial lines that he's crossing, she's shocked because of the gender lines that he's crossing. Verse nine, it says, she, she says to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, Ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. And so this woman is very important. She's important to Jesus. She's important to us today. In our text, we're going to look at four things. We see a woman searching for satisfaction. A woman searching for satisfaction. Secondly, we see a woman searching for answers. Thirdly, we see a woman searching for acceptance And then last, we see the end of her search. So first of all, a woman searching for satisfaction. This is in verses 10 through 15. And when you read this conversation, it's very clear that Jesus is talking about water, but he's not talking about water. And he's not talking about her giving him, Jesus, water for his thirst. He is talking about him, Jesus, giving her this living water 
for her thirst. And so Jesus is talking about something that's much deeper than hydration. Jesus is talking about the thirst of the soul, the thirst of the the human soul, the core longings and the core desires that every human being carries inside. We all carry these things inside of us. And, And Jesus just, he wades directly into it. Verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, if you knew about these things, if you knew who I am, you would be asking me to give you a drink and I would have given you living water. And so the woman says, you would give me water. You would give me water. And she's talking about water He's talking about the human existential dissatisfaction. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, this water in the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So, you, you know, water bottles. We've got these water bottles. Everyone's got their water bottles. You drink from your water bottle today and tomorrow you will thirst again and you will drink again from it. Jesus is not talking about water. He's talking about something that, that completes the yearning of the human heart. You sense it. You sense it in, in all these different ways in life. You sense it in, in the fading glory that, 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 that a team... Is, is bathed in when they win a championship, but it's a fading glory. And for a week, maybe two weeks, the news will report their championship, the victory and the glory of it. But, but the next year, by the end of the year, the glory glow is gone. And, and all those people on that team who are who covered with this radiance and this glory, they're still facing the worries of life. They're still facing the anxieties of life. Who even remembers Super Bowl Eight? Who even remembers Super Bowl 19? Who was playing? Who won? Who even cares how many passing yards were completed in those Super Bowls? And, and beauty, not just victory, beauty? You could be among the most attractive women in this town, but beauty and admiration, they fade. And they're forgotten. Like a, like a flower that blossoms, but withers and then it's gone who remembers and some people look for for satisfaction everyone is looking for satisfaction somewhere in something in someone and and isn't it the case don't you know it you don't have to be a child very long to know that even when you obtain the thing that you wanted so much you find yourself wishing for more and so some people look for satisfaction in a relationship they They want to matter. They want to matter to someone. And and when you get into these, those kind of relationships, when when the person, one of the people is wanting to matter, and they're wanting to matter, to matter way too much, you you enter into these relationships that are emotionally suffocating. The woman who wants to know, who has to know that, that she matters to you, or the man who, who's always wanting assurance that he really matters to you. And, and no matter what you say, no matter what you do, it's just never enough for them. Their thirst can't be quenched. And, and their thirst is smothering you. 
Where do you look for satisfaction? Where are you looking for satisfaction? The book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament tells us about a person who's got basically unlimited earthly resources. This is a person who has the time and, and has the opportunity to try everything, to try every earthly source of satisfaction. He tries education. He tries arts. He tries the pleasures of life. He tries wealth. He tries accomplishments. All of it, he says, all of it, he says, at the end of the day, still leaves him empty. He's still hungry. He's still thirsty. The universal human experience tells us that none of these, none of them are enough. Verse 13, Jesus says, I have a water, living water. Whoever drinks of it will never thirst. And if you drink of this water that Jesus offers, you will never thirst because inside of you, there will be a, a fountain, a, 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 a fountain that springs up, not a well that you draw from, but a fountain that is just flowing with water, springing up to eternal life, he says. And so when Jesus says that this living water that he would give to people who ask, when he says that this living water brings eternal life, Jesus is speaking of more than, he's not just talking about immortality, that, that you could live and you won't ever die. He's talking about immortality, but he's talking about much more. Eternal life in the Bible is well-being that won't end. Well-being that goes on and on and on. And you're doing well, really well today, and you're doing really well tomorrow. And you will be doing really well forever. It's physical well-being. No sickness, no cancer, no COVID. It's emotional well-being. No worries, no fears, no tears. It's societal well-being. It's a community of gladness and peace and human thriving without end. The day on which the sun never sets. This woman is thirsty. She's thirsty for all of that. She knows that she doesn't have this living water, but she wants it. She wants it. Verse 15, she says, Jesus, give me this water. I don't exactly understand what you're, you're, you're talking about, but I know I want it. I can tell. She says, Jesus, give me this water that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw this water. Now, have you done that? Have you, done, have you, have you asked Jesus to give you this living water? Whether you're young or old, have you known that you're thirsty, that you're thirsty for this kind of water? And have you known that the world is not enough? That you're not enough? And have you asked Jesus, would you give me this living water, this kind of living water? So we see, we see a woman searching for satisfaction. We also see a woman who's searching for answers. This is in verses 16 through 19. And at this point, the, the conversation pivots. And the woman, she's just asked Jesus for living water. And Jesus, in verse 16, says, sure. Get your husband and come back here. Now, up to this point, Jesus, you could say, Jesus has been out of the ordinary. Maybe Jesus has been obscure, but now Jesus is offensive. Why is this offensive, what he says here? Well, the woman says, I have no husband. She's surprised that he's bringing this up, and, and, and it, she's dodging. Why? Why is she dodging? Because the truth, the truth is that she has been married five times presumably divorced or widowed. And now she is sleeping with a man, not her husband. Now, 
if you or I did this, that maybe someone comes and visits church and you bring up something really painful about someone's marriage or their divorce or their, their, their boyfriend, you think, whoa, okay, that, I was just not intending to, to go there. Jesus did not accidentally step on this landmine. It, it, it would be like, like you meet someone and, 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 and the someone is with a woman and, and you mistake this someone's sister for her, her mother. You say, oh, hi, good to meet you. And is this your mother? And, and she says, no, I'm his younger sister. And, and you just think, okay, well, that just totally went wrong. Jesus, though, has opened this closet and he's dragged the skeleton out. He did it on purpose. And he's telling her this. He says, you've been through five husbands and now you're in bed with a man without marriage. And in that culture, that would have been a public shame if it were made known. And, and even now, in our time, how many people do you know who have had not three husbands, not four husbands, five husbands, five marriages? And, and what kind of judgmental criticism do you mentally impose on a person with that kind of configuration? Well, because of her life history, this life history, this woman knows that she has no honor left. She's got no honor left in this community. It would, it, would be, it would be like today, maybe it would be like being put on the public sex offender registry. You just, you just whenever people meet you, they always will have this footnote about you. When, when people talk about you and, and, and are asking, well, do you know such and so? There would be this footnote. They would always feel compelled to bring up. Did you know about her five husbands and that the current guy is not even a husband? What is her response? What is her response when Jesus just unloads, when he just rips this wound open? Verse 19, she says, Jesus, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, there's, there's, there are different ways you can read this. Some people read this as just she's embarrassed, and so she's changing the subject because of her shame. Maybe she's trying to change the topic to, to get the attention off of her social stigma. But some commentators point out that rather than seeing this as a woman just, just kind of trying to bob and weave, maybe this is what's going on. The woman here is realizing something very big about Jesus. She says to him, you are a prophet. A prophet is a, a very rare individual who has direct revelation from God. There are very few prophets, few prophets, if any, have walked the earth. For most of history, there have been very, very few prophets. And for this woman, a Samaritan, a prophet held even more heightened significance. Here, here's something else to know about Samaritans. They received and, and they believed the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, but only the first five books. They only believed and received the Pentateuch, the first five books, the books of Moses. And so that, that limited reception of canon, that shaped and it limited their expectations and their theology. And so it means that they didn't, didn't recognize the importance of Jerusalem. They didn't recognize the importance of the temple in Jerusalem. They didn't recognize the kings of Israel or the books of the prophets. For them, Revelation stopped with Moses. And so one of the things, one of the last things Moses wrote, Deuteronomy 18, it foretold this. And, and this is something that Samaritans would have held on to. Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. It's Moses speaking. 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And so one way that this shaped Samaritan religion, they were looking for a Messiah figure. They were looking for one who would come and address everything that's wrong, set everything right, and it was this Deuteronomy 18 prophet figure, this kind of prophet Messiah. And so this woman and the Samaritan religion were waiting for a prophet. They were waiting for the prophet to come, the the one who would bring them words directly from God once again, like Moses. This prophet would, would know things that only God could know, and he would tell them things that you could only hear from God. He would tell them the truth. The woman is looking for the truth. Samaritans were looking for the truth. And so when Jesus tells this woman about all of the significant men in her life, all six of them, she knows that he knows. Jesus knows all about my messy life, she realizes. He was just this man sitting at a well at noon, and he knows all of this. Only God could have shown this. And so she says, Jesus, you must be a prophet. And, and this tells us something significant about this woman. She has been spending her life looking for answers, for someone to tell her the truth. You notice this, as you read this account, she has got a lot of questions, a lot of them. She's got theological questions. She's also got questions about her own life. She, she asks how are you, Jesus, how are you a Jew speaking with me, a woman? She's like, what's going on here? Where, she asks this other question, where can I get this living water? Where can I get this? She asks, where should we meet with God? Jerusalem or Gerizim? And finally she asks, is this man, is Jesus the Messiah? She's got all of these questions. Verse 25, the woman says, according to our religion, all my life, I've been waiting for someone. I've been waiting for the someone who would come and tell me the truth. The one who, when he comes, he will tell us all things. That's what she says. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. She's looking for someone who will give the answers, who will explain the way to God, who will explain why I've been through five men. And now I'm on my sixth And I'm still not satisfied. And I'm pretty sure I won't be satisfied on the 7th, 8th, or ninth. Who will tell me? I'm looking for someone who will tell me the answer of how to get the peace that has eluded me all my life. She's a woman searching for answers. Are, Are you searching for answers? How can I make sense of my life? How can I make sense of life itself? Why do I do the things that I do? Why am, I, why am I not satisfied after do, I do the things and I get the things that I really wanted? Why am I still thirsty? It's notable that Jesus starts by talking to her about theology, but Jesus then moves very abruptly to talking about sin and shame. She believes that Jesus is a prophet not just because Jesus has theological answers, She believes that Jesus is a prophet because Jesus sees her sin. Jesus sees her misdeeds. Jesus sees her regrettable decisions. Jesus sees her life mistakes. Jesus sees her current bad choices. And Jesus tells her the truth about all of that. The man that you live with is not your husband. Does Jesus have his finger on everything wrong that you have ever done. 
the stuff that you hope that no one else discovers, the stuff that you wish people would just forget, and that they wouldn't keep bringing it up, the stuff that you're still doing, and you hope that it never comes out. If there's a lesson here, it's this. You really can't, you really can't talk about matters of meaning and purpose without also talking about your own personal morality. You can't talk about meaning without talking about your own morality. Let's talk about the purpose of life. Let's talk about how to get to God. But let's also address your sin and my sin. Jesus says we must discuss this. Have you come to the point where you, where you disclose everything, all your sins, to Jesus? Have you come to the point where you let Jesus point his finger at the hard truth about what you've done and what you tell yourself, the narrative you tell yourself about what you've done. Have you come to the point where you let Jesus point that out, focus on it? She said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, true. But you have a man that you sleep with. Don't kid yourself. So we see a a woman searching for satisfaction. We see a woman searching for answers. And third, we see a woman searching for acceptance. She's searching for acceptance. Verses 20 through 24. There's so much more we could say here, but next week we'll look at more of this. For tonight, just note that this part of the conversation, on the surface, it's talking about the place and the worship of God. Okay, a theological topic, a a, a church topic. Where is God? How, How do we access and worship God. But, but really, threaded through all of that, this woman is searching for acceptance with God. That's what these questions deal with. What worship does God find acceptable? What's the acceptable way to access God and to be in his presence? You understand that, that Jews, Jews believe that Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, there is where God placed his presence. There at Jerusalem, the people could come and be in his presence and offer him worship. But for the Samaritan, in their theology, God placed his presence here in the shadows of where they sat, at Mount Gerizim. And they had theological reasons for that, from the Bible. The place, Gerizim was the place where Abraham built the altar, first seemed to build the altar before the Lord. It's the place where Israel, before they entered Canaan, renewed their covenant. And so Jews, Samaritans, disputed with each other. You've got the wrong place. No, you've got the wrong place. Jerusalem or Gerizim, which is it? Each side said, because you have the wrong place, God will not accept you. Verse 20, in in which place, she's asking, in which place will we find God and rightly worship in his presence? The question is, where do you access God? How can you be acceptable to God. Team Judaism had their answer. Team Samaritan had their answer. Now we'll, we'll address these other things next week, but, but look at what Jesus says here. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Jesus says, Everything is about to change. Everything is about to change because of me and because of my cross. Jerusalem, Gerizim, very interesting debate, very important 
debate, but ultimately irrelevant debate. The cross is going to reorder worship. The cross is going to reorder how you can access God. The cross is going to reorder what makes you acceptable, what makes you acceptable to God. True worship is not about where, but how. Not about the place, Jerusalem or Gerizim, but how to get acceptable to God. And so he says here, he says, God is spirit. God is spirit. That means God is not bound to a physical location like Gerizim or Jerusalem. He's not bound to a physical location like humans. So that place, those places will soon be irrelevant, Jesus says. But then, then okay, so how? Jesus, how, how will you get access to God? How can you become acceptable to God? Jesus says in verse 22, salvation. He says salvation is of the Jews. But he's not talking about Jerusalem. He's not talking about a physical city. Verses 23, 24, worship. Access to the presence of God. Becoming acceptable, he says, is to those who worship him in spirit and truth. So verse 22, Jesus is bringing the focus to salvation. Salvation, not the sight of worship. Verses 23 and 24, he's bringing the focus to, to say, to access God, come in spirit and truth. Now, he's answered a very specific question with words that are very general and loaded with, with theological content. He says, in spirit, you've got to come, you've got to worship in spirit. He's saying, not in a place, but in the Holy Spirit that's given by Jesus. Isn't that what he spent so much of chapter three talking about? He's saying, you have got to be born of the spirit. You've got to be born again. You've got to be born of the spirit. But it's also not only in spirit, it's also in truth. And so the truth is what the prophet will bring. The prophet, the truth teller. The truth teller, the prophet is Jesus Christ. Jesus gives access to God. Jesus is the one who reveals God, the Father, to us. That's what is said in John 1, 18. No one has seen God at any time. His spirit. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. He has brought truth to us. Jesus as, as truth teller. And so later, even more directly, Jesus just is blunt about it. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't be acceptable to the Father except through Jesus. And so to get acceptance, to get acceptance and access to God, you must recognize who Jesus is but you also need to experience a renovation on the inside by the Spirit from Jesus. And so, verse 25, the woman says, okay, you're, you're talking about Messiah, you're talking about the Christ, the one who's going to explain all things. You're saying that Messiah will give us acceptance. You're saying that Messiah will give us access to God. And then, verse 26, Jesus says, yes. That's what I'm saying. And the one to whom you're speaking, I am he. So, so here you've got this woman who is unacceptable. This woman is unacceptable to the Jews. She's unacceptable to the past five men. She's unacceptable to her Samaritan community. How in the world will she be acceptable to God? And, and that's part of the human condition. And sometimes we know it better than others. When, when someone 
tells us the truth, the real truth about ourselves, we know that we're not acceptable because of our misdeeds, because we're just not enough. That, that's the sins of commission and the sins of omission. When we start to admit the hard truth to ourselves, about ourselves, we know, we know that we are not acceptable. I am not. I am not the pastor, the husband, the dad that people need. You are not the mother, the sister, the doctor, the staffer that people need. And sometimes I, I read these, these stories about musicians who were big in the 1990s. I remember them. They were big. They were, they were the musicians who were on everyone's lips and being played. The musicians who were big in the 1980s. I remember them. But some, you hear these stories about how some of them somehow are still having concerts, they're still performing, still touring. But now, I mean, this is 40, 45 years later, and the musicians who were admired in their youth, in their prime, now they're doing these concerts as 65-year-olds, as 70-year-olds. They're, they're, some of them are geriatric men and women doing rock concerts. And you see the pictures of them, the clips of them, and they're trying so hard to look and to appear acceptable. But we're not acceptable. And we know it, even if we won't admit it. And some of these musicians, they need to admit that they're, they're no longer acceptable for that role. Is there something that you need to admit about yourself? Is there something that you need to admit about yourself? Something that others are, are trying to tell you, but you just won't face it. That in some way, in some area of your life or your character, that you're not acceptable. Well, this woman was, ex was searching for acceptance. Let's finish by looking at the, the end of her search. Jesus tells this woman, you're searching for satisfaction. You're searching for answers. You're searching for acceptance. I can give you. Jesus says, I can give you what you have spent your whole life trying to find. Verse 25, Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Jesus knows the thirst that is in every person. The thirst of the, the, thirst of the soul. Some, some people try to quench the soul's thirst with stuff, with cars, with clothes, with collections. Others try to quench the soul's thirst by social success. For this woman, for this woman, she tried, she looked for it in men. In men. She was on her sixth partner and now didn't even bother with the formality of marriage. It's significant that Jesus comes to her at this well of Jacob. For Samaritans, this well stood for their significant claim on some kind of ancient heritage, on having acceptance with the God of Jacob. But the well also held significance for this woman, this woman who is seeking men to satisfy her soul's thirst, because at a different well, Jacob, their forefather, at a different well, Jacob, a man, fell in love with a woman, a woman who would be his, right, his wife, the story of, of Jacob and Rachel. Because in that story, when Jacob came to that other well for the first time, he saw Rachel. 
He loved Rachel, and he drew enough water from that well to water an entire flock of sheep. Water abundantly, great volumes of water. And so this woman of Samaria, this daughter of Jacob, asks Jesus, are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jesus, are you able to give me a well and a love that satisfies this thirst forever? A running spring inside my soul so that I won't be thirsty, so that I won't be shunned, so that I can become acceptable? Jesus is the one person who, when you know him, will keep you satisfied. No more moving on to the next man, to the next relationship. He's the one person who will know everything about you, everything about you. And seeing that won't reject you, but will move closer to you, will give you more of himself. Jesus is the one person who knowing everything that everyone else rejects about you, Jesus won't reject you, but Jesus will receive you. In the gospel, Jesus offers to those who believe the satisfaction that you've been searching for, the answers that you've been asking for, and the acceptance that you search for and you've never found. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, taking on himself everything that makes us unacceptable to God, and the soldier pierced his dead body on the cross, a flood of water, not blood, poured out. By his death for us, Jesus became for us, became for us a spring of living water so that we would have everlasting life. Have you asked Jesus for this living water? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thirst We have spent our lives thirsting and partially quenching the thirst, but then thirsting again. We ask that you would give us this living water. We come to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.